and welcome to She's the Boss Chats. I'm your host, Jules Brooke, and in the show, I interview amazing women and female founders about what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. It's all about us lifting up the women around us. Caitlin Budge, I am delighted to have you as my guest and look forward to hearing your story for She's the Boss Chats. Excellent. Thank you so much for having me, Jules. I'm really looking forward to this. (laughs) My absolute pleasure. So let's start off with telling everybody what it is that you do. So tell everyone what you do now and maybe a bit of what your why. Fabulous. So I'm a strategic copywriter and a federal government and state government grant writer. Um, So my why is incredibly varied, um, as are the businesses that I work with. Um, So I'm working across 12 different industries at the moment. Wow. Yeah, it's really comprehensive (laughs) and it keeps me on my toes, but that's part of my why. I love to learn and I love to share and support businesses Fantastic. What a brilliant thing to say. Thank you. Um, Okay. So was there a bit of a light bulb moment? Did something happen that made you decide to set out on your own? Yes. There were certainly a few stories that stood out to me um, (laughs) that really inspired me. And the first one was winning $1.5 million of grant funding for a business that I used to work with. Wow. uh, Yes. (laughs) That was federal, federal government grant funding. And um, I realized that I had a propensity for uh, writing and strategic writing when I put together those full applications, including the financials, the logistics, the research, the rationale, everything. Oh, literally all of it. I wrote the entire grant and I had a team of four direct reports at the time. So um, I tasked them with different things, but I wrote the entire grant. So... Hmm. Incredible. And so from that moment you went, but what was it that from that made you decide to go out on your own? Okay. So that was the beginning. That was the catalyst. Um, but there were other instances. Um, there was a particularly inspiring woman, um, who was one of my managers when I was a recruiter and she inspired me to the point where I realized that I have all of the skills, interpersonal, soft skills, hard skills that are required for having a business. Um, people often underestimate business owners and we need to (laughs) be everything to everyone. It's, it's, very complicated in a really were you nervous at all i mean did you did you were you nervous about going out on your own i know for a lot of people who've been salaried it's the insecurity of the money was it anything like that or you were just itching to just jump out and try it that's a wonderful question. So, uh, in essence, no, I wasn't nervous because why I strategized. So I had the appropriate level of savings. I had eight months of wow, savings, well eight months of expenses, living expenses. And therefore I knew that with the network that I'd created and that I could leverage, um, I would be successful. Wow. I love it that you backed yourself like that. All right. Now let's go back to, uh, I want to hear your whole career right the way from day dot. So let's start with where did you grow up? What kind of a size family? What kind of a family? Tell me all. Okay. So (laughs) I am a Queenslander. I was born in Brisbane. Yes. (laughs) I lived there for the first two and a half years of my life. Um, I'm one of three children, so I have an older brother and a younger sister. Oh, the middle child. Yes, the ham and the sandwich. So uh, (laughs) I wear that title proudly. Um, So when I was two and a half, my family decided to move to England, uh, to Mm -hmm. Oxford. My dad was doing his PhD at Oxford Uni. What does your dad do? What what was he doing it on? 
Sure. So my dad is a specialist in Alzheimer's research and he, yes, he completed one of the first ever PhDs um, that looked into the correlations between lifestyle factors um, and the early onset of Alzheimer's disease. Wow. That's really interesting. What about your mum? What did she do? My mum is also highly intellectual and wonderful (laughs) with people. My mum is a school teacher, but she's also taught adult education. So my mum undertook a few different roles whilst we're living in the UK. Um, Mum taught everyone from people who are working in different car manufacturing factories, so adult education, teaching some people how to read at the age of 40 or 50 years old, um, through to being a primary school teacher. So teaching runs in my blood. Uh, My dad also lectured. um, and was head of department. So all in wow. leadership roles with a great um, privilege of responsibility. Absolutely. So how long did you stay in Oxford for? I mean, do you remember it? I certainly do. <laughs> <laughs> and the funny thing is, Jules, I often get asked, so what did you do in Oxford? I said, well, I went to school. <laughs> I was I was like three. Kinder. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was three years old through to almost 11 so oh, okay. Course, Quite a long time. Yeah, eight years. And um, look, uh, we decided to make the move back to Australia. It was either stay in England long term or mm-hmm. come back to Australia, which is where my parents both were originally from. So they made that choice. It was also an economic choice as well. The UK, as it currently is, is ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Um, and the living conditions, depending on where you live in the UK, they're not nearly as good as Australia. No, nowhere near as good. Although Oxford is such a beautiful city and it's such a lovely part of England that it is a great spot to be in. So where did you move back to? Okay, so I had no choice in this matter either. Um, So we moved back to Canberra. So my dad was offered a position um, at a hospital there. He was head of department and uh, moved back to Canberra. I completed my high school years in Canberra and uh, as did my, of course, my brother and sister. And then I decided, okay, it's time to spread my wings. Once I finished year 12, um, I knew that I wanted to go down the path of academia. So I applied for a few universities. I got into all of them. Uh, Oh, congratulations. (laughs) Which one did you pick? Melbourne University to start with. Yes. So um, what actually got me, and this is a bit of a fun story that most people wouldn't know about me. Now, the reason why I chose the University of Melbourne was there is an incredible professor who's actually still head of the ancient history department called um, Professor Louise Hitchcock. And she is instrumental um, in Australia and internationally um, in late Minoan history. So, yes, Jules, I'm a nerd. I'm very proud I was going to say, of it. can I ask, can I, can I show my ignorance and say, what is Minoan history? <gasps> okay, sure. So um, <laughs> Minoan history is a period of history in Greek history, okay. um, but it's, it's very much interrelated with um, ancient African history as well, different African nations and Northern African okay. nations and so on. Um, but then also, you know, there's a lot of interplay with the Romans. It's, it's very complex. It's a big melting pot. Right. So, but it's obviously, you know, to have a world expert at Melbourne Uni is pretty amazing. Indeed. And so Louise decided to do a presentation as she does every year for prospective students. And my mom and I flew to Melbourne to, of course, attend in person. And I remember I went into the lecture hall. I was feeling a bit intimidated, you know, it held about five, six hundred people. There were about four hundred people who attended. And I'll never forget. I sat there and I was just waiting and there was this this pregnant silence. And I remember, um, you know, Louise just walking across the stage, just standing there with her hands on her hips and just saying, all right, 
So, and I thought, what? And then this music started. And I thought, what is happening? And it was the Walk Like an Egyptian song. Oh, yeah. And Louise has a wicked sense of humour. So she decided to play this song and then dance to the song. And imagine <laughs> a professor, the head of department. Right. And she just captured me immediately. My imagination, um, my love of history has always been there, but she brought it to life. These, these ancient civilizations that I became very familiar with in the years to come, they actually felt very present and they felt incredibly valuable um, for yeah. the lessons for the society in which we live now. Right. So, wow. So you chose ancient history. Have you got a, is, was that your degree or? It was one of my majors. So I did two right. majors. So my degree was a bachelor of arts. Yeah. So ancient history and anthropology, which is an excellent uh, complimentary uh, stream <laughs> to do. Um, and for those of you who don't maybe aren't so familiar with anthropology, it's not the study of spiders. Like one of my friends <laughs> no. thought it was. <laughs> Oh, I it love is, that. I mean, I hate it. I hate the thought of studying spiders, but I love it. That's what you thought it was. <laughs> not at all. The etymology is completely different. It's the study of human cultures, right. simply put. Amazing. So what do you do when you finish a degree in um, ancient history and anthropology? You do many things. So um, I had the the opportunity, I would call it, um, when I was studying my undergraduate to be working full-time as well. I've yeah. worked full-time since I moved to Melbourne in 2011. And right. on that journey, I was able to partner with incredible businesses. I worked with international education companies as their um, marketing consultant and their account manager for 350 accounts across Australia and New Zealand. Wow, while studying full-time. Oh, yes. Yeah. Wow. And okay. I also worked in retail as well. Um, for those of you who are familiar with Kiki K, which has an unfortunate story now, but uh, back then it was 120 stores strong and it yeah. was a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. So I partnered with them and over the course of eight years from when I was uh, 17 to when I was about 23, I worked across 14 of their stores and I managed six of their stores. Wow. Gosh, that's an awful lot, especially on top of the workload of doing your degree. So yes. what did you decide to do with all this experience and um, and your degree under your arm? What came next? Absolutely. So this is where one of my mentors, my current mentors, comes into the picture. Okay. Uh, she is delightful and there will be many in her industry who know her very well and hold her in incredibly high regard. Her name is Veronica Walter and right. she is a recruitment specialist. And what Veronica did was open my mind to the commercial world and in a very real sense and also open my mind to how it is you can perform consistently at a high level and deliver every single time for your clients. Wow. So can we hear what it was she told you? Like, what, what, sure. what is it? <laughs> okay, okay, sure. Yeah. Well, so first I should say, so I assume you went to work with Veronica. Indeed. So okay. I was working for a business called Hayes. Um, it's a it's yep. a major international recruitment, recruitment firm. Yep. It's corporate, um, but it certainly uh, has lots of wonderful departments. So it really does encompass the full spectrum of white collar, blue collar. There's everything in there. Um, and there's the people to match. It's absolutely wonderful place. And I highly recommend people uh, consider it if recruitment's the space oh, yeah, for them. Okay. Right. So, um, so I was, I was working alongside, in fact, the, even the interview process was interesting. Now, 
now I'll share part of the interview process. And this was the matching with myself and Veronica as being my direct mentor, my direct line manager. So I remember sitting down with some very senior managers, the area manager and so on, once it had been determined that I'd passed the interview process. And they were sitting down with me and they said, look, Caitlin, you have a lot of interests you have a lot of skills. We're just trying to work out where you fit in within this business because you're so varied and diverse that we're not quite sure yet where to place you, but I think we know the person. And imagine I was sitting there fully dressed, full corporate business, the whole heels, everything. Nervous, first job, proper job outside, post-uni. Well, after my marketing and my account management role, yes, but my first corporate job, first corporate job. And I was sitting there and then in strolled this very elegant woman um, who I had never met in my life. And I then proceeded to go into a mini interview that I wasn't even prepared for because (laughs) I didn't know was going to happen, nor did she, which was wonderful because it was a very level playing field. Absolutely. So I remember Veronica walked into the room with this beautiful, elegant outfit on and just a smile on her face and a look on her eye in her eyes saying, what am I doing right now? I don't even know why I'm in this room. And she, I think she actually thought I was a candidate. I think she thought she was interviewing me. And then when she was, it was mentioned that I'm actually potentially a recruiter, um, her attitude and her demeanor changed in a really beautiful way. And she just knew what she was doing. So anyway, we sat down, we had a wonderful conversation. Um, she actually asked if the other managers would mind leaving the room so we could just have a more personal, relaxed, casual discussion, Oh, great! Uh, which she, which they did. So we had a wonderful talk and about 30 minutes later, she said, look, Caitlin, um, it's really up to you, but I can see that the dynamic of the team that I've created, the business unit that I've created, you would fit within very, very well. And just so you're aware, it's about 80% men and 20% women, but those women really hold their own. So (laughs) (laughs) I remember hearing that and I thought, you know what, if there's a business unit manager with 25 direct reports, a female, um, I would say, you know, I don't, I'm not so interested in ages, but probably in her thirties, let's just say at some point in her thirties, that for me was inspiring in itself. Um, that Veronica had reached that position in her career and that level of confidence and security within herself that she can lead not only a team of about 25, but she can run her own recruitment business within the business unit. Yeah. I have never in in actual well, there's only a few instances in my career when I've ever seen someone work as proficiently and expertly as Veronica. Oh right. She is incredible. And she's now a wonderful mother as well. She's just had her first child. Oh, great. And we've stayed in touch all of these years. And she continues to be a wonderful confidant and friend and someone that I look up to, as you can tell. Well, she sounds fantastic. So it's it's just brilliant to have those women that we can look up to and model ourselves on, I guess. I mean, the whole thing about role modeling. So what happened after, how long did you stay at Hayes and what happened after that? Okay. So I completed all of my recruitment training, which is a process unto itself. They equate it to an undergraduate degree because it takes you six months and it's several hundred hours of training. Wow. It's full on. Very intense, and most people don't actually um, aren't at, in the position to actually complete it. So, if you do complete it, then you move through, forward to being what's called an associate, and then you move forward to being a recruiter, a senior recruiter. It's, it's very hierarchical. Yeah. And so, I completed all of my training, but then what came along was an incredible opportunity. 
And this opportunity was in line with my master's degree that I just started studying. Okay. And that's in the space of arts management. So my second degree came, um, well, was through RMIT University here in Melbourne. And I had the opportunity to really the opportunity of a lifetime to be a manager at a museum. I was the education and public programs manager. Wow. Which museum? So it was the Islamic Museum of Australia in Thornbury in Melbourne, which was brilliant because I have studied um, Middle Eastern history um, and I've also studied um, Islamic history as well, both of which are incredibly rich and fabulous. And I continue to read about them. It's an area of history that has so many scholars who've written the most incredible articles about. Right. Okay. So you've got this opportunity. What did you, and, and, and you obviously took it. Yes. So what was that like? Tell me a little bit about what that role involved. Sure. So my portfolio was very diverse. So, for example, some of the responsibilities that I had was interacting with the local councils that were um, within the precinct um, of where it's located. Um, So the Moreland and Darabin councils, I would have regular meetings with the business development managers. Um, My responsibility also was to manage four direct reports um, who all had different roles within the business as well. Yeah. As I've already mentioned, one of my responsibilities um, was to look at other avenues of funding that I could attract, both commercial and government. Right. So it was this was the organisation that you raised the one and a half million for. Correct. Uh, right. Yes. And how long did you end up staying there? So that was a shorter term role. Um, there are a few um, there are a few expectations that weren't met by myself. Yeah. And I decided to move on from that organization. However, I did have a lot of incredible interactions with the business community, uh, with local councils, um, and with many of the staff within the business as well. Right. So, um, what came next? Okay. So what came next (laughs) after this? <laughs> oh, I love okay. the laugh. <laughs> oh, yes, life is life is full of laughter. Uh, so, what came next after this was an acknowledgement that I could lead a team, and I had all of these skill sets. What I actually wanted an insight into, because I'd started to form um, the idea and actually started to uh, create and put out into the world my business already at this oh, point okay. in time. Yep. So. I was running simultaneously my master's degree, my business, and a full time job. Um, <laughs> is this possible? Yes. Would I recommend it? No. No. (laughs) How did I know you were going to say that? (laughs) Mm. So people ask me, how did you do that? And I said, well, I made sure that I slept eight hours in an evening. I didn't glorify a long work day. And did I have a lot of social interaction with my friends? No. Not really. (laughs) Did I have a lot of spare time? No. Did I watch television? No. Did I read books? Yes. Right. So what I did was I prioritized every part of my day and I made sure that every single thing that I did was in alignment with my core values and with my core passions. And when you're driven by that, you, you uh, draw upon an infinite well of energy. I absolutely agree, but I'm interested to know roughly, and I mean, you probably can't even remember, but Roughly, what does that look like in terms of, you know, you waking at five in the morning and going through till eight at night or what are you doing? Okay, so let's look at a weekday. This is what I'm doing. So I'm waking up at six in the morning. Um, I am getting myself ready for the day, as we all do, uh, until about 7 a.m., doing some yoga and getting ready for the day. 
And then what I'm doing is I am looking at my uni work that I need to complete um, for about an hour and I'm prioritizing what needs to be done that evening after I come home from work. Okay. Then I go to work. Um, at that point in time, I didn't have a car, like we're talking <laughs> way back when. Um, so, you know, I'd catch public transport or whatever that looks like. Um either into work or into uni if I had a partial work day or, you know, a uni class. Yeah. Um, and then in the evening when I got home from work, I'd either catch up on university lectures that I wasn't able to attend in person or I would work on assignments or do preparation um, reading basically for to tutorials and so on. And then I'd finish my day at about 1130 at night <laughs> and then do it all again. And I do that five days a week. And then on the weekends, I dedicate a full day to um, university study. And when I mean full day, I mean 8am till 6pm. So that was usually Saturday. Sunday, I'd have half a day to, this is really exciting. Hold your horses for this one. I would clean the house do the groceries and do just basic menial tasks <laughs> for f the first half of Sunday. And then the second half of Sunday, I would have a social time. That was my week. Wow. Every so week. a half day a week for social and all the rest of it working. Yes. And I bet you didn't know what to do with yourself when you finally finished the degrees then. <laughs> Suddenly you just had a job. Interesting you should mention that. So yes and no. When I was first confronted, I would call it confronted because it really was confronting, uh, with the opportunity to choose how to spend my time in a very relaxed manner, it was actually quite challenging. I bet. I'm sure it was because you've been, you've been you'd taught your whole body and, and, and streamlined your life to be able to handle so much. What do you do when there's nothing to do? Absolutely. Well, what you do is you start exploring and you start looking into other facets of yourself that you know are there, but you just have the, the opportunity to explore further. So okay. what I started looking into, for example, was I started doing more yoga um, for my physical and you know spiritual and mental well-being. Um, and then I started to do things like swimming. I love to swim. I used to swim 2Ks in the pool. Yeah, uh, That's another thing that a lot of people don't know about me, and I'll be getting back into that. Once, Did you do um, competitive swimming when you were younger? I didn't. My auntie actually did. Right. Um, my auntie was in the trials to go to the Olympics for breaststroke and backstroke, but she actually broke her arm while she was training, unfortunately. Right. So um, she wasn't able to go, but I actually do come from a, well, on my dad's side, I come from a family of athletes. So. Okay. So swimming, all this, you, you just sound like a, a, a superwoman really from all of this. So, so what <laughs> then, I mean, you've told us that you were doing those um, grants and things. What was it that about working for yourself that was attractive to you? And tell me a little bit about the reality. Okay, sure. So <laughs> what's attractive for me? Well, it's really being able to use the full capacity of what I can do. So in amongst all the other roles that came after being a recruiter and after working in a museum and working with so many different stakeholders, I realized that there were very few roles that could really harness all of my skills, yeah. my creativity, interpersonal skills, my written um, communication skills, verbal communication skills, um, the body of research that I'd done, my subject matter expertise, my strategic analysis and planning. I mean, the list keeps going. Yeah. And I realized when I was reading through position descriptions, I don't think this is for me anymore. And I think the greatest value that I can bring is to the business community. This, Jules, was actually a turning point in my life and in my career right. when I was given the opportunity um, to consider doing a PhD right, and consider uh, pursuing further study, which would be another seven years potentially of my life. I'd already studied for seven years in a row. 
So I thought about that long and hard, and I thought about it from many different perspectives, lifestyle through to what are my career goals, what are my life goals, and I realized the greatest value that I can bring is to the business community not to the academic community. Right. They already have so many standout people and I don't need to be one of them. I want to come to the business community with a different approach and with an approach that's fueled by not only corporate training, but academic training, um, arts training, mm. so creative insights. I also worked with um, Melbourne Arts Festival for nine months Um way back when. And um, I learned some incredible skills. I am absolutely in awe of every single team member. I know them well. I do stay in contact with some of them as well. And they're now working at the likes of ACME. Um, They're working for national um, uh, associations in the arts space. So, and kudos to them. I think credit should be given where it's due. We all work incredibly hard so much passion for what we do, such a sense of contribution. And I feel that in the business community, when we recognize that in each other, we should really call that out because ultimately what that comes down to is what underpins my business ethos. We are not in direct competition with one another. We are interdependent. We support one another. We are all subject matter expertise. Yes. (laughs) Yes. We're all subject matter experts. Yes. And in different things, no one has my subject matter expertise. And I don't say that in, in, you know, it's an not a, no, way. it's not a throwaway it's comment. Truth. It's true. It's the yeah. truth. But however, I don't potentially have other people's subject matter expertise. So let's come together and collaborate and create magic for our clients. Now it's interesting you say that because um, one of the things that I know and certainly now from having interviewed so many women is that they feel and I'm interested to know whether you think this is true as well, that a lot of them say that in corporate life, you know, there's there's the there's hierarchies and there's the patriarchy and it's difficult. And so therefore the women aren't particularly supportive of each other because they, there isn't that, well, look, for want of a better way of putting it, that sense of abundance, it's like there is one job and I want it and you want it, so I'm going to make myself look better than you in order to get it kind of thing, that competing. Whereas when they came out into small business land, they have been pleasantly surprised by the amount of support that people get. And I guess what I mean by that is the networks where we all support each other and the groups where we all support each other. And there's so much joy found in seeing somebody else achieve something great, almost as much as doing it yourself. So did you notice a difference or is that just me? (laughs) It's certainly not just you. There's a, there's a clear dynamic shift. Now, in, in I see things from many different angles. Yeah. And that's my academic training as well, and I need to. Corporate environments support a great range of different communication styles, yeah. and it supports people to thrive and th- th- flourish. Pardon me, that's right. <laughs> my words there. Thrive and flourish yeah. um, to be able to do the best work that they can. However, as you've just acknowledged, not everyone is best supported by a corporate environment, and that's when they need to explore other opportunities. Yeah. Now, yes. I most certainly have seen everything under the sun and more that you can imagine in the corporate environment, but I've also seen that in the small, the SME environment, and I've seen it in the government environment. It is everywhere. And what it's called is humanity. Right. We are all human, which is wonderful and for many terrifying, all at the same time. Yeah. So what I think is important to do in those instances is to focus on commonalities. 
How is it that we can relate to one another? Let's not be divisive. Let's think about, okay, here are my KPIs, for example, in the corporate world. How is it that if I have a constructive and open conversation with one of my colleagues, not only can I meet my KPIs, they can meet theirs and we can both gain positive feedback and attention that we both so desire. Right. So, sorry, but my question to you is, did you notice a difference when you went from a corporate environment into a small business environment in terms of the way people interact with each other? Certainly. Yes. Yes. And that answer is as complex as there are stars in the sky at night. Right. So, Yes, there, there, of course. <laughs> yeah, uh, no, that's okay. I mean, for, for a lot of people, it's a very marked difference. And I guess um, I spend most of my life in small business land supporting other people. So I see it all the time, but I just hear stories coming out of corporate. So I just wondered if you had noticed anything. Now, because this podcast is about women, one of the things that I really like to do is give people the opportunity to talk about people like your amazing Veronica, um, who've really made a difference in their career and supported them. Are there any other women that sort of stand out in your mind? And it could be a teacher, um, but right the way through to now, are there any other women that you'd like to tell us about how they've been helpful to you? It's just nice to name names if there are any that stand out. Okay, sure. So I'm going to take us way back and I'm going to take us back to primary school. One of my school teachers, and I'm sure I'm not alone in saying there are teachers who've been absolutely instrumental to their personal development, psychological, emotional, um, academic, the whole lot. Uh, Teachers really are the bedrock of our communities. So one particular teacher I'd like to call out, her name is Mrs. Haig. And uh, Mrs. Haig back at Rice and Anthony uh, School, primary school in Oxford in England um, was incredible. So she was my English teacher. And as now I'm a strategic writer and a grant writer, English is very important. It is what I do. It is my business. So what happened with Mrs. Haig is she realized that my reading level was way beyond grade five. Yeah. And in fact, I did a test where it determined that my reading level at grade five, so I was 10 years old, um, was the age, was was the same as someone at the age of 18. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason why that was, if you take it one step back, is my parents had always encouraged me to do what brought me joy, to engage with literature and books in such a way where my imagination could run wild um, and I could read such different styles of narratives that I would be able to soak in that language and that story and, and that, that feeling and that passion, you know, that the author had for, for the pieces that they were writing. So I was already reading um, books that were at a standard of year 12 when I was in grade five. Yeah. So you can imagine what a teacher needs to do with that. I think um, I was very similar to you actually in that sense, or a very precocious reader, reading things way beyond my years. My dad used to trot me out at dinner parties to read paragraphs to show that I was able to read and understood them. So I get it. So um, so she was a fabulous teacher. 
incredible teacher. And what was wonderful was that she was able to cater to all of the different needs of the students in the class from those who struggled um, to achieve what the standard was to those that were well above and beyond um, what they'd even anticipated would be the standard. So that was the beauty of her many, many years. In fact, I think at that stage, it was even decades of experience. And one thing that I take away from that as well that I took into my adult years was being yourself and being authentic and really leaning into um, the wondrous things that you can do. There is wonder and beauty in that as well. Absolutely. And it's not something to be embarrassed about, shy about, um, concerned to shine in the appropriate time um, and in the appropriate place. Um, It's something that should be really treasured. And it's something which I'm sure many listeners who have children, um, they realize that, you know, their children – excel at a whole range of different things. That's right. And, and it's not necessarily academic, but everybody no. everybody is good at something. That's right. And it doesn't need to be academic. And in fact, if it's not academic, it's as valid and as Absolutely. valuable as academic. Thank you, actually. That's a really good point to make. Um, because there are a whole lot of mums, I'm sure, who'd be listening, going, oh, my kids aren't great at reading or they're not good at whatever. And, you know, I mean, I've got three very entrepreneurial brothers and two of them never went to uni. We had, you know, a father who was a surgeon and a mum as a physio. So there was that expectation. And, you know, if I look at the three of the four of us now, I would have to say that the uh, the ones who haven't gone to school have probably done almost better than the ones who did go on to uni. So it is totally about your drive as well and a whole lot of other things rather than just um, just your academic um, prowess. So now talk to me about, now this is very much about since you've started your own business, have there been any what I like to call pivotal moments? And what I mean by that really is have there been any challenges along the way where you've really learned something um, or any, or, or, or I guess any of the experiences that really have sort of made you, you know, to use that hideous word that everybody's been using since COVID, pivot. But have you done some, have you had things happen that have made you change direction a bit? Yes. Tell me. I have. And one of which came from one of my mentors, Melanie Taylor, who in her own right has an incredible business wow. and an amazing background, was a palliative care nurse, and now has moved into the space of really inspiring future leaders. Oh, fabulous. So Melanie Taylor is incredible. One of my current mentors and really prompted a huge growth um, spurt in my business. Okay. Now, this came in the form of surprise, surprise, people. So I was having a candid conversation one day with Mel and she said to me, how are things going in your business, Kate? And I said, well, it's going well, but I wish I was an octopus because I do not have enough time, hands um, or expertise to do everything that it takes to be a business owner. It is very complex from marketing to strategizing to client interactions to um, it just goes on and on. I mean, I'm a service-based business, not a product-based business, so it is different what I'm working with, but still as challenging. Yeah. Well, actually, now I am a product-based business, but that's we'll get to that in a moment. <laughs> so um, I was having a conversation with Mel and she said to me, okay, Caitlin, what are some blockages for you right now and how can I help you? This is the attitude that moves mountains and helps people move forward. And I looked at her and I said, what do you mean by that? Do you mean in terms of pragmatically or in this conversation right now? And she looked at me, she raised an eyebrow and she knew exactly what I meant. She said, 
would it make a difference to you if you were to have an EA within your business? Uh-huh. And I said, oh, yes, it would. And she said to me, well, funny you should mention that. Um, I'm actually working with some incredible people uh, at the moment. I'd like to put you in contact with them. And I, I really didn't quite know what to wow. anticipate. Wow. Um, I thought, oh, this could elevate me, maybe, don't know. Anyway, gave it a go. And then three years later, I still have this same gentleman working in my business. He's my marketing manager. His name's David. He's absolutely incredible. And my business has grown since then by two people. And I'm going to have an additional one probably two people coming into my team next year as well in 2022. Oh, you're amazing. What that's And how long have you had the business for now? It's about four years now. <laughs> that's really, really good in that amount of time. Well done. So to somebody who is as driven as you and has as many prongs to their, I don't, I don't know how to say that actually. It sort of came, you know what I mean. But anyway, so many different things that you do. How do you juggle work and life? How do you make sure that you're not going to burn out? Because that is one of the most common threads that I see through all these interviews is as as driven as we are, that we don't give ourselves time out to recover, relax, whatever it might be, and um, and and overwork. Good question, and I learned that the hard way as well. And as I said before, in earlier in this conversation, we're all human. We all make mistakes, and we all learn from them. So there certainly have actually been instances, primarily when I was working in. Um, corporate um, or private sector roles where I did come close to burnout. And that was because I was juggling my university degree, full-time work and my business. And that is not necessarily for everyone. And it certainly is not something people should maintain for, I would say, more than about six months, if possible, because of the toll that it takes on you mentally, physically. Not sustainable, but not at all. But it was a means to an end for you, so... You got- Precisely. It serves a purpose yeah. and it got me to where I am now. So I'm very grateful for the process. So in answer to your question, one thing that's very, very important, and this actually comes down to the client base that I have now. One thing that I've noticed is a common thread across all of my clients. So these are all CEOs um, of businesses that turn over anywhere from $500,000 to $15 million. Yeah. So rather large businesses. And one of the common threads is they leave their ego at the door. As do I. My ego has no place in my business and it never will. It takes energy away and focus away from the core of what I'm trying to deliver and what I'm partnering with my clients to do. Their ego does not serve my clients in any way, shape or form. And in fact, it actually detracts from the quality of work, which can be Uh, you know, given. So one thing that's very important when I'm going through the process of assessing opportunities for clients is I really get to know that working style of a client. And I really take that time to do that due diligence because that due diligence will potentially save tens of hours or many, many, many hours um, at a later date. So that's a very, very important. I say there are two factors that determine whether or not I will work with someone on a certain project, well, three. One, do they need a service which I provide? Two, is there synergy? And three, is the timing right? Right. So to go back to the question in terms of the hours that you work and how you're juggling work and play, how are you structuring Mm -hmm. your life that way? 
<laughs> Don't you worry, Jules. <laughs> I get my playtime in. I do, I do. So, you know, for example, last night um, I was working on a client document. Yep. I was doing a strategic writing piece and my partner was cooking a beautiful meal for us, you know? So it's it's about being sure that you have a network of people within your space that are truly supporting what you're doing as well. Yeah. And that you do that from within <laughs> as well. If I start to feel that I am getting tired, that I am overworked, that I need to pull back or push forward, whatever it is. It's about having that internal clock or internal guiding system within yourself. And then once again, leaving the ego at the door. If you are tired, rest. Yeah. Rest is as productive as action. Absolutely. And that is, that is again, a very good statement. So, but I think reading between the lines, what you're saying is you work really hard until you feel tired. So you're not, so with a lot of people, they say, okay, after six or weekends or whatever are my special time, you haven't got that going on yet, but then you haven't got kids yet. So that may come if you decide no, to go down that route children. later as well. Oh, look, Jules, I'm, I'm, pr- I'm quite private, as you can probably tell about my personal life, but I can assure you it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. Um, okay. I have friends. I do wonderful things. I, I tend not to mix it too much unless I um, build a particular rapport yeah. with clients over a six-month period. I do try and keep them a little bit separate because I also respect the privacy of my family, my friends, and my partner as well. Yeah. Um, and I don't really think that it needs, for my, me personally, it doesn't need to come into the equation, but it certainly makes up my life. And I can't imagine my life without those elements. Yeah, good. My business is one element of my life. Without those other elements, my life wouldn't be complete. Yeah, no, fantastic. Yes, I just like to ask people about that juggle uh, to make sure that they give some time to themselves as well. Okay, is there a quirky fact about you that most people don't know that you would be up for sharing with us? Sure. Okay. <laughs> this is my fun. So, this is always the fun answer. Go on, hit me with wonderful. it. Wonderful. So there are many quirky things about me. I mean, I'm somewhat eccentric, but high high functioning eccentric, right? So um, one quirky fact. Okay, and this is this gets most people because they don't actually know what it is. So I also uh, used to be a musician. So first I played trumpet mm-hmm. um, for about six years until I got braces, which was the death of my trumpet oh, career. That's, um, I because- wouldn't have even thought of that, but yes. <laughs> Oh, well, anyone who knows about braces and knows about trumpets and the size of the mouthpiece realizes those two do not go together ever. (laughs) Um, So what I decided to do in the context that's important is that I decided I reached out to my trumpet teacher at the time and I said to him, look, I love music. I'm trained in music. I can read music. I can play it. I'm in all these school bands. You know, it's all happening. I don't want to give it up because I've got this metal in my mouth. So I said, what can I do? And he said to me, well, let's try you on a few instruments. He tried me on a few brass instruments. So I tried the French horn. I tried trombone. I tried the tuba, which was hilarious (laughs) because I was at that stage about five foot six um, and quite light. And the tuba was towering over you. Um, the tuba was half my height. <laughs> I would say half my height. And I actually, my arms weren't big enough and I didn't have the upper body strength to carry right. it. I actually literally couldn't carry it. And I wasn't weak, but I, it was very heavy. Um, but then I tried the euphonium. Now, this is the fun fact. Now, a euphonium is one octave lower than a trumpet, so it has has a very similar resonance, um, but it's obviously lower in pitch, which is beautiful, and it's about half the size and weight of a tuba. So I decided to pick up the euphonium. I picked it up, and my teacher at the time said to me, oh, try playing a few notes. I played a, you know, um, C major scale, and the rest is history. So 
Yes, that's a fun fact. I played the euphonium for five and a half years. Wow, that's a great fun fact. And and for those people who don't know what a euphonium is or didn't, they now do. Okay, so before we round it up, just a couple more questions for you, apropos of nothing, because it's just purely my nosiness. Um, I love my iPhone and I absolutely adore hearing about new apps that I might not have heard of. So my questions to you are, do you use your phone for business? And if so, do you have any clever apps you can tell us about? And do you use it for fun? Okay, good question. (laughs) Yes. To a degree, I, of course, I use my phone more for fun than business. Oh, okay. Um, with, with business, um, because of the platforms I work across being highly technical, I try not to have it on my phone. And also I, I can't read the details on my yeah. phone. I mean, the screen is only so large. So my phone is more a social uh, space for me and just life admin. Um, however, you know, I have started using a few apps that are business related um, for some of the networking groups that I'm part of. And I must say the current version of Slack is is really good. Yeah. It's quite intuitive. Um, it's not too obtrusive. Um, and I'd highly recommend that if people um, want those notifications. But of course, when you're busy and head down, making sure you're working, turn off those notifications. Yeah. No one needs that popping up. Um, so yes, apps don't really use a huge amount of them. I find that they're not particularly productive for me. Um, I'd rather uh, gather the information that I need in conversation, which is what I do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, Canva, for instance, is something I really almost exclusively do on my phone. Um, But, you know, it just depends. Different people use different things. So you use it for fun. Talk to me about some fun apps that you play on. <laughs> I'll tell you now okay, I'm at level apps. 3000 and something of Candy Crush much to the absolute shame and horror of my sons who say oh okay. my god mum you're so uncool. <laughs> that is brilliant. Well this is about to be even more uncool. Okay. I don't actually have any apps for fun. Right. I have Instagram for my business and I do have a personal account, but I basically don't use it ever to the point where it's actually entertaining right. that I use it so little. <laughs> um, but one thing that I am proud of is my first ever phone, Nokia 9910, black and white, had buttons you had to yes. press that went A, B, C, D, E, F. You had to press them three You're times. You're showing your age here because I know oh, that very well. Yes. Oh, yes. And but 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 I can claim there was a preloaded game on it called Snake Impact. Okay. Now I had Snake Impact two. So for those of you that like black and white games, like old school, you know, arcade games, um, I managed to get past the googly monster towards the end. Um, and I actually made it through, I think about half of the levels. So I'm quite proud of that wow. because I did that when I was, a, <laughs> I was a teenager. Yeah. Um, so snake impact, um, and I think it was called spacecraft or space invaders, spaceships, space invaders. That's one, not spaceships. Yeah. Space invaders. But the only thing with space invaders was call it what you will, but um, I got really stressed playing it because the the monsters or yeah. whatever these things are, they come flying at you and it's quite intense. It is. When you get to the higher levels, you, you just can't, my fingers couldn't press quickly right. enough. So basically the monsters got me, so that's all right. <laughs> oh, well, I love to hear that you do it. My other one that I, the really, the first game I ever played on my phone, and I think I'd had the first iPhone, maybe even the second iPhone before I started playing on games because I just used to think that was all for my sons and my brothers. And then I discovered flight control. Oh, my goodness. Flight control is, 
a whole lot of planes coming into different runways and you've got to allocate them a runway and make sure they don't crash into each other. And you have jumbo jets coming in really fast, biplanes, which are sort of crop dusters coming in that have to that go really slowly, helicopters, jets, and then just normal flight. And so it starts with one or two and then the planes just keep coming. And that, anyhow, I became totally addicted to that for a very long time. <laughs> Thankfully, I've now moved on to Candy Crush, much to my children's horror. <laughs> Oh, Jules, look, in life, we all need light relief. And this is actually one thing I'd recommend to people. It doesn't matter how serious your life gets. It doesn't matter how big your business becomes. Find the lightness. find some fun. Find the joy. And please, please try new things. You don't want to be an expert in everything. It becomes quite boring. That's right. So challenge yourself. It's okay if you don't know how to play these games on a phone. It's okay if you don't know how to do uh, pencil drawing or, I don't know, uh, fixing a, a car mechanics or whatever. Be that active learner because that's where you're going to have the joy and that's where you'll have the connection as well. You know, bring your children into that process. Invite them to learn with mm. you. Invite your friends to learn with you. It's so joyful to be bad at something. <laughs> it's really good. It is probably I'm more unusual for you than some of the rest of us. I'm pretty good at being bad at things, I think. But anyway, <laughs> it is good. You're right. You, and, and certainly – to give yourself a break and realise that you don't have to be perfect at everything. Perfectionism is not always attainable and it doesn't really matter. Well, Caitlin, thank you so much for sharing your stories with me. Do you want to tell everybody if they want to work with you or they'd like to get hold of you to help them get another million and a half dollar grant or whatever it might be, what's the best way for them to do that and what's your web address? Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jules. It's been an absolute oh pleasure and a privilege to have this conversation. <laughs> Your questions are so thoughtful <laughs> and it's not often that you're given the opportunity to reflect upon a whole lifetime as well as a lifetime of a career. That's quite rare. Oh. So I really appreciate this opportunity. My pleasure. So how do people yes. get hold of you? Indeed. So if people would like to connect with me on LinkedIn, if they type in my name, Caitlin Budge, uh, which will also be written um, as part of uh, the comments uh, for this particular post. So please do connect with me on LinkedIn and let me know how it is you've come across um, my profile. I also have a YouTube channel, Clarified Solutions, if you'd like to follow us there and a website, www.clarifiedsolutions, which is plural, services, plural, Fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Jules. All the best. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of She's the Boss Chats. For more information and to find out about our other initiatives, including our weekly lunch for female founders and our TV show, go to she'sthebos.com.au. She's the boss.